Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. Um, So today we are going to be looking at one of his more overtly political novels. And it's it's the only novel or it's the only short story of his that overtly deals with the the theme of anarchism. Um, Now, there's a lot of anarchist themes throughout his work in various ways, and we could elucidate them. We've already seen many of them. His anti-statism, his anti-war philosophy, his views on technology all have parallels in, in anarchist thinking, especially post-World War II anarchist thinking. But this is the only one where anarchism is a, a direct theme, if you will. And it's even not the major theme of it because it's just partially the context of it. It's actually more about power and technology. Um, but we are going to take a moment and think a little bit about, about anarchism and what it meant in the 1950s and how Dick may have responded to it. Uh, but first, I want to take another comment. Uh, this comment was made by Richard again um, on, on my episode on, on Souvenir. So we can go back and listen to that. Uh, so now, Souvenir is a story about uh, an empire that finds one of its long-lost colonies, but... It's it's not developed. Up, it's not up to kind of intergalactic or interstellar standards of technology and social values and things like that. So they're, they, they're forced either to assimilate into the empire's homogenous culture or be destroyed. And they choose to be destroyed. But in the meantime, you get this very fascinating examination of of this culture with its cultural diversity with its kind of his, its fascination with various periods of history, its human scale technologies and, and things like that. So you can go back and listen to what I have to say about that episode. But here's what Richard says. This is again, this one is again much concerned with one of his most elegant themes that is devolution. As I said before, everything seems to be cyclical within his fictional fictional reality an unbreakable fatalistic system where everything falls into stagnation. At the apparent surface of this piece, it seems to be a, a sort of social entropy and atavism. I'm reminded of Ubik, where the entropic process of decay means everything man-made also reverts to earlier forms. It seems that Dick thought at this very early stage in his career, he was already skeptical about the frontier. Well, yeah, entropy is a major theme in his work, and certainly you're pointing out Ubik as a good example of that and that's certainly there but not everything in his fiction falls into stagnation mr starship or space mr spaceship doesn't fall into stagnation that's promethean the variable man is not stag, but is it what breaking free of stagnation so he's this can be stopped stagnation is exists but it can be stopped right even in stability well stability is more pessimistic in fact you get two stabilities or two stagnations competing uh, with each other but I do think there's space here for for a bit of resistance I mean but of course we could read Piper in the woods as a sort of replacing a progressive civilization with stagnation but I think you also 
would then have to deny the theme of work resistance. That's part of that story. But anyways, as for him being skeptical of the frontier, obviously I, I disagree with that. The, the frontier at this stage in his career was still the escape from stagnation. And I think this story is a piece of evidence for that view. Okay, his second paragraph, Richard's second paragraph. Despite this, the citizens, quote, citizens of this world, seem to be content with their archaic society. It appears that the retrograde civilization is beneficent despite its warring factions. The moral dilemma of this one is if the Federation was right to do what it did to them, even if their standards were odious to modern technological and enlightened world government. The question seems rather uncertain and insoluble in absolutely moral terms. The ending appears to pertain to historical value and guilt, though culture has to be preserved. So I don't quite see what your answer is here, Richard. If culture has to be preserved, is that the culture of the center or the culture of Williamson's world? Because obviously that's not being, that culture is not being preserved at all. It's being destroyed. And I, I would disagree about this idea that the standards were odious to a modern technological and enlightened world government now, unless you're being a bit sarcastic here, uh, because our quote unquote enlightened and technological world government that we have today commonly, you know, bombs into submission societies that resist global standards. Right. Of course, uh, George W. Bush famously identified the axis of evil, the three countries that more than any other denied or rejected or resisted incorporation into into the world system. And currently we have a president who's fanning the flames of war with North Korea. Again, a country that's trying to have an alternative system. Not that I'm not saying those systems are necessarily good, but um, they, they, they are resisting the trends of global capitalism, right? All third ways become, or second, now, now it's all second ways become something that needs to be smashed. And I think my larger issue here and where I would disagree with you most is in the using this term archaic to def describe Williamson's world. How do we measure social, technological, or human progress? To call Williamson's world archaic implies that it's backward or a throwback. And yeah, they do kind of copy other cultures in that sense they're a throwback, but we always do that, right? Not just MAGA. You have this kind of throwback to the 50s there. But there's other ways that we borrow from the past, we learn from the past. That doesn't make us archaic in ourselves, right? We, we could, for instance, learn some things from the Middle Ages about, um, I don't know, tr transnational institutions that go, that, that, you know, institutions that go beyond the nation state but are still global, like the church, right? Now, there's, a lot, there's plenty to criticize about the Roman Catholic Church, but it was an interesting alternative to the nation state. And so people who, you know, have good questions about the utility of the nation state in a, in a global society might learn something from the Catholic Church, right? Or people like me who are very interested in the fate of the cities and, and look on horror at the developments we, we see in cities. They're becoming much more, less human scaled, more authoritarian governments, more class divided and, and whatnot, can look to something like the Greek polis, not to copy from, but to get a little bit of inspiration from, right? It doesn't mean we necessarily dress up like Greek warriors and, and fight battles with phalanxes against each other, the way Dick describes it in, in Williamson's world. Um, but I would be, go harder uh, on this point. Williamson's world is not backward in a technological sense. Take two societies, one with very large institutions, one with centrally controlled distribution of goods, great class inequalities, odious and boring labor, maybe lots of technology, maybe lots of gadgets, lots of, of 
cell phones and, and iPads and, you know, advanced weaponry, all, all the things we, we associate with advanced technology. But along with that, very little human freedom, very little choice, a lot of cultural conformity. I'm, I'm kind of trying to describe here the world we live in, our world, right? Now, if you want a ground for stagnation, that's where I would say you go. But anyways, let, let's look at a second society. Imagine one where we have human skill technology, technology that most people can learn to use and to develop and sustain and maintain. We have uh, ecological uh, sustainability, thanks to renewable resources, perhaps, or um, more re reasonable distribution patterns of, of resources and energy. Democracy, right? Williamson's world has democracy. Strong communities, a short work week or a society without much work, a society of artists and creators or crafters. And here I'm trying to describe Williamson's world, or at least how I see it. Now, which is more advanced? I would suggest that the latter is more advanced, even if the first one has better toys. In my view, then, there's really nothing stagnant about Williamson's world at all. It is a technological society, but where we see stagnation is in the empire, which really has nowhere to go. All it can do is assimilate and incorporate and homogenize, right? They're like the Borg. That's how they're sort of presented in this, this story anyways. And I guess this all goes back to what I've been trying to say for a long time about automation and, and some of my criticisms of, of Dick about automation, right? I, I do think it's possible to have a highly automated economy of crafters and, and I think that's actually how we get to a society of crafters is by automating the most odious labor-intensive work really kind of abolish capitalist labor essentially and replace it with 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 this kind of society of crafters right but again this is this is from my book but there, there's a section in my book where I talk about Lewis Mumford um, now, Lewis Mumford was like a 1940s, 1950s social theorist. He was like a public intellectual, and he, he wrote a lot of books, mostly about technology and history, right? So Mumford breaks apart three terms that are often used interchangeably, but contain incredibly different ramifications for human culture. One is the tool, one is the machine, and one is the machine, in quotes, with capital M machine. The difference in these terms refers to the amount of human agency that's retained in their application. The essential difference between a machine and a tool lies in the degree of independence in the operation from the skill and motive power of the operator. The tool lends itself to manipulation, the machine to automatic action. The degree of compl complexity is unimportant for using a tool, the human hand and the eye perform complicated actions, which are the equivalent or you know, in function of a well-developed machine. While on the other hand, there are highly effective machines like the drop hammer, which do these do very simple tasks with the aid of relatively simple mechanisms. The difference between tools and machines lie primarily in the degree of automation they have reached. The skilled tool user becomes more accurate and more automatic, in short, more mechanical in his originally voluntary motions as they settle into reflexes. On the other hand, even in the more complex automated machines, there must intervene somewhere at the beginning or at the end of the process. While both tools and machines transform the environment and reflect a conscious human choice to alter reality, one makes one makes people a central component of the process, physically and intellectually. The other functions mostly without human intervention. Humans have since Paleolithic times used both. And now the machine, 
what is the machine, the capital M machine? Well, the machine is the entire technological complex that emerged alongside industrialization, right? And this is more of the system, not an individual technology, but the system of, of control. Now, w Mumford's ideas have, have had a big influence on, on a lot of anarchist thinking of, of the post-war era, even of the, of the interwar era. I'm thinking especially of George Woodcock's 1944 essay, the tyranny of the clock, which describes in historical terms how the invention of the clock and the use of clock time in our industries has taken away human freedom and taken away human agency, right? Instead of waking up by the, the, the sun or by our habits or by our need, we wake up at the same time because that's what the clock demands, right? So we lose a lot of our agency there. And the, the clock in his essay just becomes one example of how a technology takes away our human agency. Right, and, and if anything, it's much worse today. Our our systems are so complex, the machine is so ingrained in us in every area of our life. It is almost impossible for any one of us to be truly free. In, in you know, and and make democratic choices. The example I often give of this would be the the light bulb. Right, we turn on a light switch and we get light, and that's a great technology. And we really would have a different world without it. But in doing so, we we marry ourselves to a whole technological system of ecological extraction of coal, of power plants that we don't really understand and can't use, and on and on and on. All that stuff, the whole infrastructure, right? And we could imagine societies creating locally based sustainable energy sources educating people on how to use and maintain and understand those systems, right? And, and take advantage of them. That, that's possible. We don't do that though. We, we, we take the technocratic approach to it. So anyways, uh, this is a long way of saying, I couldn't disagree more that Williamson's world is, is archaic. Um, I actually think growth and creativity takes the dialectic, it takes diversity, it takes conflict, and it takes tension. It's homogeneity that's banal, and that's all the empire can offer. Uh, Williamson's world is homogeneity, no matter how fancy their, their gimmicks are. In fact, it seems a lot of their gimmicks are just devoted into how to destroy societies and to enforce their power. I mean, we've seen so many cultural depictions of interstellar empires that, that really have nothing to offer people artistically or creatively. Star Wars is coming out in a little bit, and that's just yet another example of of an empire that's that's a dead end intellectually. Williamson World seems to be a great place to pursue all sorts of creativity, and, and it, it just seems a better world in every every sense, more advanced. All right, we can have. I guess another way of saying this is we can have advanced technologies, and we can have advanced social systems. And how do we define that? I think our value for defining what is an advanced social system would be things like diversity, independence, democracy, the capacity for creativity, right? The, the fact that humans, human needs are met, right? And all of this is aided by technology to be sure, right? We live longer and better lives with better medical technology. But that doesn't mean doctors have to, you know, have an authoritarian relationship with their patients, right? It doesn't mean we have to go back to the asylum for people to have better medical health care. The asylum was a great technology, right, to try to address the problem of mental health care. Um, but we certainly now realize that there are better ways of, of treating mental illness than through this massive institution. I think we could criticize the hospital the same way, right? The institution that sees everyone as a sick, as sick or as a problem. 
right? There, there, there are models out there of, of better methods. China in the 1960s, due to a, a shortage of doctors, created the barefoot doctor movement, which trained people in basic health care and sent them to the countryside where they administered to the village directly, providing medical health care to people who didn't have it ever before. Um, and that is just one possible historical example of ways we can distribute these technological innovations in ways that are more democratic and more attuned to human um, you know human needs uh, to live in strong stable and sustainable uh, societies so I, I'm kind of going off here uh, a little bit farther from your your question but I guess to your your, your point about entropy Richard yeah there, this is a story about entropy as well but I do think as in many of these stories, there's a way out is given. And he's not fully pessimistic yet. He's, it's not the maze of death yet, where, yeah, you have entropy and cyclical history and no way out, really, or, or maybe a spiritual way out, but really no way out for most of us. In these early stories, there's much more potential for, for alternatives. And the story I'm going to look at today, Last of the Masters, does this in a way. Um, so anyways, let's talk about Last of the Masters. The Last of the Masters was originally published in Orbit Science Fiction. It's in the November-December issue. It was a, it was a bi-monthly um, magazine uh, in 1954. Um, and you can find it in the third volume of the Collected Stories of Philip Dick, the, the second variety one. Okay, so let's um, get into the plot here. So we got a governing robot, Boars. So I, I told you the story is about anarchism, but we start out with actually a governing robot. So that I guess would be the direct opposite of anarchism. So Bors, a governing robot, wakes up and finds it increasingly difficult to return to consciousness. This idea of the robot, kind of the last robot decaying and getting old is, a, is kind of an interesting idea. And there's a great story written in the 40s, and I forgot who wrote it, but it's called Rust. And it's about basically a population of robots. The humans died and there's no one to maintain these robots and they're just slowly rusting. And it's a very slow and painful and well, I guess painful is the wrong term, but a slow and humiliating decline for them. And eventually the last robot, they just can't, they, they, they stop being able to move and function because they just slowly rust over time. That's sort of what's happening to Boars. And I wonder if Dick was inspired by that story, Rust, in this image of, of Boars. So, He's, there's still humans around. That's a big difference from, from Rust. And so Bors is like the last robot in a society of, of humans. But his job is to basically govern this society. Peter Green, its aide, begins discussing the day's business. So Peter reminds Bors that they need it. They need Bors. And, and Father will soon arrive, Father's under aid, to address Bors' maintenance problems. He's basically the, the repairman. Right, so we got kind of a tinkerer here whose job it is is to maintain the system. So, right, so this image we have here of a of a complex technological society run by a machine, but it still needs to be tinkered with to be maintained. Right, it's it, it can break down. So when follower arrives, he complains about a mix-up in the traffic system. After an examination, follower explains that they have managed to jury-rig these repairs to Bohr's motor system, but this decline in its motor's abilities is really in, in, in inevitable and irre irreversible. So um, 
this tendency towards decay and decline. So Richard, I'm going to talk about entropy here, so you don't have to worry about that. Uh, that's certainly a theme here. Bohr's begins by giving orders for production priorities and the other kind of things that a governing robot would do. But Bohr's rusted and crumbling body is then at the end of the section put in a small service truck. So that's the setting in like the state, right? And then we switch to the anarchist league, the anarchists. So we have Edward, Sylvia, and they're both Tolbys. Uh, Edward Tolby and Sylvia Tolby. And then Richard Penn. Robert Penn, sorry, Robert Penn. These are the members of the Anarchist League, and they're on a scouting mission. So they're kind of in war with this final last state. Most of the world is anarchist at this point, or basically after a war, they put together this Anarchist League, where Bohr's rules is this very small pocket of, of, of state. So if you think of like the dispossessed, where you have, um, what is it again? Anaris, that's the, like, the main society which is hierarchical and capitalistic and everything and then what's the other one i just i forgot sorry it's urus is the the main society and anaris is the anarchist moon so the anarchists are like the minority and that here the anarchists are the majority so they're these guys are members of the anarchist league they're searching around they notice the remnants of of the civilization from before the war they approach a farmer who tells them about a town farther ahead with many people, but it's got a lumber mill and a mechanized clothing production. There was a fever in this town the previous year, and the people were convinced it was caused by the cows. The group, the scouts, turn down the farmer's offer for a drink, and they move on to the, into the town. They get past a checkpoint. Uh, they remind the guards that the Anarchist League members don't pay taxes. They head to a pub, and they order drinks. They become the attention center of the pub. The young man asks them about the Anarchist League and how to pass examinations to get in. Edward tells the story of, this is for our benefit, but you get the story of the history. So he tells them the story of the fall of the government robots during a major rebellion that spread around the world. So sometime in the past, the world was completely run by governing robots. And this is a theme he'll take up again in Vulcan's Hammer. In fact, I think Vulcan's Hammer has already been written by this point in Dick's career. It wouldn't be published until 1960, but it was the first full novel science fiction novel he wrote but all these government robots were torn down during this major rebellion that spread throughout the world once people realized that they didn't need these government robots and therefore they didn't need governments they started to tear down these buildings and tear down these institutions of, of governance the anarchist league then worked to root out all the remnants of government and its major tool of offensive power the nuclear weapons Edward tells his listeners that they had heard rumors that there was an enclave of governmental power still in, in the area of the town. The people assure the anarchists that they're not covering up for any government entity and that they believe they owe the anarchist league their life. The anarchists drive away, but they're stopped by a dark-haired girl who offers the basement of her father's farmhouse as a place for them to stay. But soon after this, the car falls off the road. So we go back to Bors. Bors is brought to its office, which allows him to look out at the society it controls. It exists in a valley surrounded by mountains, so it's kind of well defended. It's the kind of the place you'd expect a remnant of an old system to kind of hang out and, and endure. Bors is carefully planning the recreation of the time of government. So he's still holding out. So he's kind of like Hitler in his bunker holding out for victory in the last days. Right? And he thinks he can spread his infrastructure to other places as well. 
Um, to the degree that kind of government is a, is 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 a is a meme, I want, you know, like the idea that it's like an idea that spreads, right? And almost like a software, right? I think this is something that's sort of taken up in terms of language in novels like uh, Snow Crash, of course, by Neil Stevenson. Um, but other people have talked about this, that like the idea of government or the idea of God, or the idea of heaven, these are all memes, right? And they change over time. You know, this regular natural selection applies to memes like they do genes. And so some are successful and some fail, right? And I don't know. I think this is Dawkins' idea mostly, but it's been developed into a whole field of study, right? So is Bohr's trying to kind of just reintroduce the meme of government into places that found they don't need it anymore? That's, that's partially, it seems, what his plan was. But he wants to also bring back its infrastructure. Now, there certainly is some self-survival is part of Boris's concern here, right? He knows he'll be more likely to survive in a society that's much more technological and one that feels it needs government robots. So Boris tells Fowler that he's worried about Green shutting him down every 10 days, which is something he has to do for maintenance. He said he'd prefer armed soldiers during the time he's shut down and helpless. Fowler, so he's also very paranoid, um, as many governments tend to be. Fowler puts Bors to work in his office and Fowler discusses the situation with another government worker, McLean. Bors will soon break down, he reminds him, and that they had best leave before that happens because it's, it's going to be disaster, essentially. They, they think it's, it's not going to end well, so you better get out of here before this happens. And then at the same time, they can escape this authoritarian control of the government robot. Um, we need to stop and, and wonder why is it that these people who seem not too happy with Bors follow him. He seems very uh, crippled and feeble. And this isn't fully getting described in the story, but it's something I thought about when I was rereading this. There's, it might go back to Godwin. I think Godwin, one of the first anarchist philosophers wrote this, but it might've been someone else from that same period of time, like the 18th century, those really proto-anarchists. They asked this question like, why is it that they're thinking like feudalism, I guess, or kings. Like, why is it that a thousand people allow one person to tell them what to do, right? At any point, we could overthrow our bosses, right? The Where does their power come from? Yeah, sometimes it's military. Sometimes it's it's institutional. Certainly, a lot, often it's, it's in terms of control of money. But, you know, why is... Those aren't things... Those can be overcome by mass actions. And so why don't people just overthrow their masters? Um, and here, even in the situation where you got a dying, broken robot, that has to be shut down every 10 days for a period of time. Why not then just destroy him if he's so odious uh, a ruler? So anyways, um, back to the anarchist. Edward Tolby recovers from the car crash. It was really an assassination attempt. The assassin was a dark-haired girl and she died, as, with the, as was the man she was with. Penn has also died. Robert Penn has also died. So Sylvia is still alive. Edward hides in a gully before he can secure Sylvia and, and save her. But men arrive in a small airship, investigate the scene, and Sylvia's taken. Government, or Edward knows a government is nearby and has taken Sylvia and tried to kill them. So, uh, meanwhile, Green reports to Bors that the assassination attempt was a bit botched, that the anarchists weren't all killed. Green, though, is confident that they can defeat the Anarchist League because the anarchists don't have weapons and organization. This, they says, is the real weapon that we have. We have organization and weapons. 
But Boris is not so sure. He realizes that the anarchists have really taken over the entire world. And although they are anarchists, they are well organized, that there's no contradiction between anarchism and organization. So Boris also talks to the injured girl they captured, who is obviously Sylvia. Sylvia is brought before Boris. Sylvia learns that Boris, not Boris, Boris. Sylvia learns that Boris was a government robot that evaded destruction during the revolution, which we already sort of know. Since then, Boris has been very carefully and slowly reconstructing government in the valley. They're completely protected from the outside world, even that nearby town they visited. Uh, Sylvia could not really understand why the people continue to follow this robot. So this goes back to my question and even the question that you see being asked within this little governmental enclave. Like, why follow this old robot? It would be almost like if, you know, there was an Apple computer, Apple IIe computer, one of those old ones from the 80s, and people still, like, followed its commands. You know, it's, it's like at some point you realize this is preposterous to continue to, to be directed by this kind of thing. Boris, though, tries to explain that the key to his power is knowledge. And so this is a theme we have in uh, the Great Sea, right, where the, the knowledge the computer had allowed it to basically eat people to stay alive. It's so the only thing it could achieve with its power in that case was sustaining itself. This goes a little bit farther in that it seems to have the power to recreate a whole government and, and become a boss. This knowledge remains intact even if his body falls apart. And that's another interesting theme in that story, Rust, is it seems the robot's minds stay intact, but they, they lose the ability to move. They almost like have Parkinson's disease. And it, it's kind of horrific to read. It's a, it's a really good story. You should go back and, and look at it if you get the chance. Uh, so Sylvia, good anarchist, attacks Boris but fails to destroy it. Um, Boris is part of a government system and it must try to sustain that system. The people within the system had to sustain it as well since it's key to their identity. And this is, I guess, the closest we get to an explanation about why people follow this robot. But it begins to prepare for a total war for its self-defense. So meanwhile, Edward Tolby finds the valley with this final government. So he's trying to find Sylvia. He watches the society prepare for war. Edward captures a soldier using a gun that dissolves his weapons and equipment, basically a, a slum gun. And from the soldier, Edward learns that the valley is controlled by a government robot. Edward thinks about the difficulty the government will have fighting a one-sided war. War requires two sides to fight. Uh, and so we get a little bit of Dick's anti-war philosophy here, right? That a war takes two sides to fight. Now, I don't know if that's really literally true. I mean, certainly we see, have historical examples, especially in terms of genocides and ethnic cleansings of one-sided wars and how they end up. But um, maybe there's kind of this idea of protracted people's war a little bit, right? Like you don't have to necessarily meet on a battlefield to, to fight a war, right? You just got to not be defeated. And then eventually the army, the military is, is going to be stretched thin and have a difficult time suppressing um, the suppressing their, their enemy. Certainly that was kind of what happened in the American Revolution, right? Washington lost a bunch of battles, but he kept the army intact and the British could never fully occupy areas. It was like playing whack-a-mole. You could defeat the army here, but militias set up elsewhere and the U.S. government kept running. Maybe that's sort of what he means. But anyways, he's basically saying, we're not going to meet you in battle. So it's not, you might as well not try to fight. Edward sneaks into the great offices of the government, killing some soldiers along the way. Edward finds and captures Fowler and Fowler gives him a chance to kill Boars. 
he kills Green, who is attempting to defend the ro- robot, and then Edward does finally destroy Bors with a strike of his staff, basically just beating it to, gr- to the ground, showing how easy it would have been for the people in this governmental enclave to destroy Bors at any time. So Fowlers is now cleaning up the mess, the remains of Bors. Edward asks where Sylvia is. Fowler takes him to a hospital, and Edward predicts that the remains of the government will fall apart without war. So government needs war to be sustained. They part ways, and we see that Fowler has kept a few components of Boris's brain just in case government is needed again. So we have a bit of a cyclical uh, side to the story where like, maybe government could be restored again. And we have seen this before in, in Dick's works, such as in James P. Crow, um, where a government is torn down, but a new government seems to be put in place at the end. Um, but there's a lot of others that that remnant of the old uh, surviving. Even some souvenir has this right, but it, it kind of works the other way. Um, so, what to say about this this story? Um, well, first let, let's talk about anarchism just a little bit in the 1950s. So, the, I guess from the point of view of 20th century history, anarchism had a few heydays. I, I think three three periods where it was really politically relevant one would be maybe the early like the late 19th early 20th century right the great upheaval in u.s history where you, when you had the populace but you had the knights of labor and you had the iww the wobblies which were an anarcho syndicalist kind of union that believed in organizing against the traditional unions and forming these national or even international uh, unions they targeted not the traditional proletariat, but migrant workers and, and temp workers and people in various jobs. And that is one of the things that the IWW still does quite well. Or I think now they're active in organizing things like sex work and um, and uh, like Starbucks and places like things that traditional unions haven't really ventured into. That period, you had a lot of anarchist movements. And I think its high point maybe was with the Haymarket and then in Chicago, that movement was suppressed. The other time is really, I think, the interwar period, right? You had a lot of anarchists in Germany after World War I, the Spartacus movement, and of course the Barcelona anarchist movement in the 30s, which had a major role to play in the Spanish Civil War, where you actually had uh, the CNT, the Confederation of, of, Union, of Trade Unions or whatever. The CNT comes from the Spanish. That This was an anarchist union. And you had anarchist resistance to the Soviet Union. You had that, that Makhno movement in, in Russia, in Poland. So there's a lot of anarchist movements here and there, right? And especially in the Spanish Civil War is where a lot of them were active. Mostly these get suppressed by the major belligerents of World War II, which were all imperial powers or Stalinist or, or Nazi powers. Even in a way like early Chinese communism, the early CCP had a lot of anarchist influences. Um, if you study Chinese history and political thought, one thing you might learn is that long before Marxist socialism got introduced into China, it was it was anarchist socialisms from like Kropotkin and these guys were being translated long before Marx was being translated into China. So many of the early Chinese communists were actually anarchist in a lot of their values and influence. Marxism really came later with with. Lee Da Jiao's translations and works. All right, so 
the third period would be, I think, in like the 90s with the anti-globalization movement and the Battle of Seattle. And, and since then, it's, it's been growing in influence around the world, uh, especially with the, with the rise of the Internet. It's also becoming a much more div- conflicted term on its, what its meaning is with the rise of these so-called anarchist movements like anarcho-capitalism. Um, but, you know, I did, that's not really much. There's not much common with the anarchist tradition in that particular um, point of view. But generally, the anarchist movement is is kind of it. It just attacks hierarchy everywhere it it it, it emerges. Not just anti-capitalism like the communist tradition tends to be. So they are communists or socialists in the sense they believe in kind of consumption by need distribution of resources based on need um, they tend to be much more individualist though anti-government or anti-state anti-patriarchy so wherever there's hierarchy they're going to question it some have argued that anarchism really isn't a program as much as it's attention as a critique as something that exists within all societies and all institutions and all systems and that you almost need it as a constant questioner. But then there are anarchists who really do believe in revolution and the establishment of anarchism. But outside of the basic idea that they're libertarian and they're socialists or libertarian and communist, I, I don't, I'm not really differentiating those two terms, communism and anarchism too much. Despite beyond that, it's, it's pretty wide open. Some say we have to go back to primitivism to get this, go back to the paleolithic, some, think the union is the best way to achieve this and the, the basic unit of or social organization you know and on and on there's there's some who even think there can be market capacities in in anarchism so there's a lot of diversity there in in the movement now in dick's day there isn't many anarchists um, but there's certainly people who would have remembered anarchism as a, as a tradition and the idea that after a war we kind of go to anarchism as a way of reorganizing society is not hard to believe, especially if you believe like Dick does, that government really relies on this, on military power to sustain its authority, right? And there's this point is made directly in this book. that Without war, you can't have government. So Dick, I don't get a sense that Dick was sympathetic to anarchism. I think there's even a couple passages in the exegesis where he sort of just, 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 you know, bad mouths anarchism a bit. But he has a lot of anarchist values in that he's deeply humanistic. He does want things to be human scaled. He's very individualist. He's skeptical of institutions and, and systems. He's anti-capitalist as often as not. He has the same, he also has criticism of the Soviet system though. And he's kind of, sometimes he lumps even both sides of the Cold War kind of as, as mirror images of each other. And that's something that anarchists would have done. So Last of the Masters is the only Philip Dick story to address anarchism directly. There are numerous anarchist themes, though, throughout his work. Unlabeled, but clear to see for anyone who's, who's looking. Now, in the story we have here, we have a fairly convincing model of how a shift to an anarchist society might come about, even if it's overly simplified. What we seem to have happen is people learn that they could function without governments first. So it starts in the mind. So it's a, it's a more Hegelian, idealistic approach. Of course, Hegel would never find the ideal society to be government-less, but the idea that we go to thought first before we transform society. People learn they can function without governments, then work to ensure that governments would not rise to enslave them again by destroying its remnants. And that's 
that's the, I guess the model. I, I I don't think there's anything wrong with this plan for anarchist revolution. I, I think there's kind of a middle stage where you gotta kind of do what government does on your own, or do what capitalism does on your own. Um, to a certain degree, we already do, right? Capitalism is supposed to produce goods and services. Well, workers already do that, and know have the know-how, the knowledge, and the factories. They have everything they need to do that. But you kind of go to this idea that what government does is doesn't help us that much or it's not necessary, that what government can do or doesn't do that we need can be done by other ways. Do that and then try to work to to inoculate or to create a uh, yeah inoculation against the emergence of this idea of government emerging again. I mean, that's not a bad model of, of anarchist revolution, it seems to me. So indeed, this society seems to work just fine without government. For the most part, anyways. Technology here is used to alleviate life. The community remains. There's medical health care. There's automobiles. There's a lot of things. There's decision-making organizations. There's various forms of representation. It's not all rosy, though. There's a lot of irrationality. So when a plague gets hit, it's blamed on the milk. So maybe there's some degradation of, of some knowledge there. It led to the unjust slaughter of a farmer's cattle. By and large, though, we see a world much like Williamson's world described in Souvenir, which I urge you to go back and, and read that or, or listen to my episode on that. Of course, I talked a bunch in the beginning of this episode on, on Souvenir as well. We even have a, a later story that we have technological enclaves in the turning wheel. It's kind of the inverse um, model. Well, I guess instead of government enclaves, it's technology enclaves in the turning wheel. But here, Dick is trying to present an anarchist, anarchist alternative as positively as possible. So the technological and political narratives are intertwined brilliantly in The Last of the Masters. The germ of the state and the germ of the machine, to use Mumford's language, are presented as the same thing. Again, Dick makes a very strong distinction between technological systems, where the control is outside of human you know, autonomy, and technologies used by humans. As Bohr's reflects on the true nature of the machine, we learn that it's actually humans who prop it up and can take it down again. So he thinks at one point, the system has to be preserved. The system couldn't preserve itself. It wasn't a thing apart that could be separated from the people who lived it. Actually, it was the people. They were identical. When the people fought to preserve the system, they were fighting to preserve nothing less, nothing less than themselves, end quote. And this is, I guess, the democratic or liberal perhaps response to to anarchism, right? That government, yeah, government can be oppressive, but just change the government, right? Or reform it. A reform will, will do that. Government is the ideal representation of our, our capacities and our needs. I don't think Dick really agrees with that, and, and I don't really fully agree with it. But, you know, I guess in the short term, it, you know, at voting times, you want to believe this, but there doesn't seem to be that much evidence that governments actually reflect the will of the people. Um, in, in practice. Technological systems and infrastructure of government is remarkably resilient and slow to change and often quite separate from um, democratic controls. They can survive in isolation. They can survive sometimes without resources and in the face of the near destruction of all governments, at least in the, the story. Yet as long as the germ survives, somewhere states may reemerge. And what is that germ? This is the key, key question that people who are sympathetic with anarchism have to ask. Where do we need to remain vigilant against to, to prevent the return of hierarchical systems? All right. 
Um, right, that but back to that model of, of anarchist revolution. First, we need to learn we can do without government. Then we need to do what needs to be done without oversight of government or masters, bosses. Then we need to ensure that government doesn't reemerge. Right, we need to attack the germ. We need to to get rid of the meme itself of of government. Well, where is that lie? Where is that lie? What is that one thing? What's that one idea that has Trojan horses government in it? I don't know. But in Last of the Masters, Dix clearly thinks that germ is knowledge, symbolized in the computer circuits that Father stole away in the end. But what kind of knowledge? Is it the exclusive access to knowledge? Right? It's, it's, it's almost like the, you know, I don't think you'd have a problem with open source technology. Maybe it's the, the copyright, the IP idea of it, the, the exclusive access to technology or knowledge. Anyways, the last of the masters ends with the physical destruction of Bors, the last governmental robot. But Dick has an easier answer to the entrenchment of power. Simply ignore it and refuse to play, refuse to play its games. This is the point he need, he makes about war. The government can prepare for war all it wants, but if the other side refuses to fight, there's not a, there's not going to be a war. It's not clear what Boris's government can do to the Anarchist League if they just leave and go on with their life and refuse to fight. Conquest is possible, but Boris is trying to defend itself. Without another government to fight, it lacks the opportunity to expand. This last government is, in fact, doomed even if it's not destroyed at the end of the story, even without the intervention of the team of the Anarchist League. The same though would be true of the people in government. At one point, some of the government workers inside working with Boers say, why don't we just leave? And I think this is a very, very good question. So that does it for Last of the Masters. So thank you for bearing with me on this uh, longer episode, longest episode, almost 45 minutes. Wow. I guess a lot of that was devoted to talking about Richard's questions and ideas on souvenir. But anyways, thanks for, thanks so much for listening. I will be back next time with another story. I believe it's going to be progeny, which is, is about education. So um, we're really entering into what I think is a really creative part of Dick's careers, where the, the stories are all really laying important foundations of, of his worldview. Um, so again, thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments, please leave them below. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And uh, I'll be back shortly. So in the meantime, keep keep reading and, um, and you know, let me know what you think. my tired thoughts That leaving dies, that leaving dies. Till